0: Happy Anniversary! And you're thinking, what anniversary? The 400th anniversary. Are we getting closer? 2020. Minus 400 is? 1620.
1: 1620.
0: What's 1620? The landing of the Puritans at Plymouth. And that is an amazing thing, 400 years since then, and uh, we have a legacy quite the legacy, folks. We as uh, Americans and most of all Christians, we have uh, a lot to be thankful for at this time of Thanksgiving, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of hiatus this week and um, go from Revelation to some various scripture and really history, which shows the greatest experiment ever as far as government and practice of Christianity. No other kind of government has ever been what we've had for these, what, over 200 years as far as the, uh, the government that we know. But even before then, whenever the uh, Puritans, the pilgrims came here, they already was giving, were giving us what a government really is. And it's based around God and His law. So we have everything to be thankful for today. Um, What a country that we've had. We still have. I don't (laughs) know what the Lord has in mind. He's the one that sets the boundaries. And I do know that this world wants to come together as one. But God told the nations to split and cover all the world. And he made them do it. And he divided the languages and such. And they want to come together. It's, it's about globalism. It's what a lot of the major problem is. Fitting in with the rest of the world. Not being a sovereign nation. There were people who believed in truth. The truth of the scripture. The truth is what they lived for. The truth is what they fought for, and the truth is what they died for. So we come here today realizing what God had done through many, many people who gave their lives for standing up for truth. Uh, It's always a time for thanksgiving, isn't it? It's automatic for Christians to give thanks. If If you're not giving thanks and you never have, then you're not a Christian. Because that's what pours from his heart. He can't help but thank God. Starting at salvation, because he was absolutely helpless, he was dead. And when we think of Thanksgiving, we think of that story of Thanksgiving that everybody's probably familiar with, although in our society today with our uh, history being revised, totally blotted out, a lot of uh, the generations that are below us have no knowledge of what it is about. But it's a matter of history when we think of that uh, one year where the pilgrims and Indians got together. It's really about giving thanks to God. And they shared the blessings of the harvest as they ate the meal together. It's a matter of history. History is important, it's vital to any nation, to any individuals. And our history is shaped around theology. Theology that goes back to Scripture, the apostles, the early church, early church fathers, Augustine, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, John Owen, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, and all the rest of the Johns a lot of them I think they liked that apostle the parents did but I will tell you that those people that God used and they're mere people just like us yet they still speak and demand a hearing as living voices today so all those writings that we have shaped our theology what I teach I have learned through scripture the Holy Spirit and godly men who wrote things that shaped my thoughts, which in turn, you guys have had the same kind of experience, either reading those or hearing it here at our church, Bible studies. Anyone who knows me knows I like history. Really, church history is what I'm really excited about. It's really probably one of the most fascinating studies that you'll ever have. It touched the world in so many ways. Reformation history touched the world like no other movement. It had quite an impact on the whole world. Universities, schools, printing, books, the arts, the music, culture, all of those things enhanced the world. The Reformation made the world better And really, ultimately, the real better and the real best is knowing God. But if they have all this culture without Christ, it really means very little. But it has been a good place to live in this world that we live in. We've been blessed, all those who have been raised up in this country. And I will tell you that Thanksgiving, that we're celebrating here today, and of course coming up Thursday, the official day, Thanksgiving and Reformation have ties. They are so closely knit together. And we think of that first Thanksgiving. And we'll see how they come together as we uh, look through a little bit of uh, history. And we ask this question how did the pilgrims get to the first Thanksgiving in America? How did they get their theology shaped so whenever they brought it over here, it affects us today? That's what we're going to be looking at. So uh, I will invite you to keep your ears open because sometimes it may seem like a lecture. It's a little bit differently today, but all of this is based upon Scripture Godly legacy, godly heritage through the Word of God, and as we look at what has happened and how God has moved through history, we are in awe. Let's pray. Father, great God, you are holy, awesome indeed, and as we embark upon a little bit of a journey today, from the time of Wycliffe all the way to where we're at now, to Thanksgiving, we Thank you, Lord, that we have these people who gave their lives, literally, to further your truth and further the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they were committed to. May we be enhanced by their lives and their theology, which shapes our thinking today amidst a very dark culture. In Jesus' name, amen first one we look at. Your outline uh, is on your bulletins. If you don't have one, there's probably one around somewhere in the seat. Just grab it. I've just got some pictures up here to kind of uh, correlate with it in in a way. Not a real outline, but the pictures kind of form the outline in a very brief way. The Reformation. The roots of the Puritans. The roots of the Pilgrims, and if you'll notice, there on that line, I have Puritans slash Pilgrims, because really they were the one and the same, and I'll explain that in a little bit. They're called the so-called Pilgrims, and that's okay. That means to journey, and they did. But they were Puritans also, and for you uh, that know me, you know that I'm a great fan of the Puritans, kind of the golden age of church history. They didn't last too long, but their writings still last today. And we have been shaped by them. Before the Reformation, there was a pre-Reformation. When we say Reformation, it means to reform. It means the church had to be reformed because it was very dark. It was even called the Dark Ages. People didn't have the Word of God. It was written in Latin and only for those people who were priests and the educated could read Latin. The common man could not. And the church hierarchy did not want the people reading the Bible. A lot of them couldn't read anyway. That's another thing the Reformation did. It brought literacy back into the fold. So... Before what we know as the Reformation, which started in the 1500s, and most people think of Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. That was in the 1500s. There were actually whispers of a Reformation starting in the 1400s. Don't hear a lot about that, but it was very important because it helped shape the mold for whenever the Reformation hit. There were certain men who actually made an impact on the church as they stretched the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. And notice that, the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. Because those were terribly absent in what was known as the church for so many hundreds of years, there was no preaching of the Word of God. They might have read a scripture too. But that was really it. It was really not about the Word. The Gospel was coming alive again after a thousand years. Even in the 1400s it started. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. That's what this is about. That's why we get it. We gather here really to worship God and the only way we can worship Him him is through the Word, the truth. Thy Word is truth. So, the dark time period that is going on, God lifts up a man by the name of John Wycliffe. I've got a feeling all of you have heard of him. Some might know of him better than others. But you know, he played a key part, but you probably don't even know when he lived. It's in the 1400s. An amazing man that God lifted up. I'll put it this way. I can put it real quickly, but I'll give a little more detail on him. Because he plays so much of an important role. He wanted to put the Bible in the hands of the common man. Imagine that!
1: <laughs>
0: Thy Word is truth. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's how you get sanctified. That's how you get saved. That's how you get sanctified. Set apart. You see, Wycliffe is often called the morning star of the Reformation. That means the light is coming. The morning star is the first glimpse of light. And he's called that. There was also another one called That or Something to That. There's a second part, John Huss, who happens to be Bohemian, uh, Czechoslovakian. Uh, He too, in that same time period, or a little bit after that, but it's in the 1400s, also had a craving for the word of God for the people. But we're focusing upon England today. Because a lot of times we wonder, well, how did the Reformation get to England? The Reformation started in Germany, went to Switzerland, also a little bit of France. Calvin had to get out of France because he was persecuted heavily, so he went to Switzerland. But it was spreading. Of course, it went to Holland. Spread in Europe. How did it get to England? Well, we start with Wycliffe. This is why. 14th century, Luther's not born yet. It was chaos, folks. There was serious trouble in the 1400s in England. The church was corrupt. It was in total disarray, disorganized. It was not biblical at all. It did not offer hope to people in a time when they needed hope. So the 14th century was actually called the Babylonian captivity of the church there in England. I will tell you that it was so much confusion at the very head of the church. The popes were corrupt. As a matter of fact, there were even two popes going on at that time. Another thing is that they were very worldly, very corrupt, and they were doing very lewd and evil things. The morality was horrible. and It was a century of plague and diseases. There was something called the Black Death at this time. And it swept across England several times. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? We live in a time that seems to be dark. There was also a century of war. It was called the Hundred Year War between England and France. A lot of despair. This was what was going on in England at that time. It was a domestic unrest. I'll tell you something else about it. There were riots going on. Rebellions and violence in the country. Probably a lot of looting. There was a brief Peasant revolt in England. It was put down after that. It was not a bright and happy period of time for England. But it was the time of John Wycliffe. God knows exactly what he's doing. in his perfect sovereign timing brings up this brilliant man, John Wycliffe. He was a scholar. He was a scholar of scholars. He's associated with... Uh, Oxford University modern day scholars are just discovering how brilliant this man Wycliffe was the Oxford University was the leading university in all of Europe maybe the world and Wycliffe went there he was the leading scholar of the leading university he was called the jewel of Oxford Oxford That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Well, see, just like everybody else, he was raised up in a Roman Catholic thinking. He was a teacher. And he said a lot of controversial things as he read Scripture in the Latin, which he understood. And he would say these controversies over and over again that authority was a gift from God. In the church at that time, they said Scripture was an authority, but only because there was tradition and the church. That was the authority. So it was not Scripture alone, but it was tradition and the church itself, the church magisterium. Here's where he started getting into trouble. He challenged that. He said, no, the authority is held in the Bible and that alone. In the next century you will hear sola scriptura cried out all over Europe. Cry of the Reformation. What's sola scriptura? Sola scriptura is scripture alone. No other authority. Wycliffe understood this. Well, this created a lot of problems for his life. He wrote a lot of books, but the biggest thing that he did was to contribute to the people, the common man, Bible to read in their own language. And this is the emphasis that I'm putting forth in their own language, English. We live 600 years later, and we are reading our Bibles in our own language and can understand it. That's amazing. Wycliffe had a lot to do with that. He believed in that so much that he wanted to translate it into their language. And he says, "It's I want to make it possible for everyone, the plowboy, the milkmaid, the housewife, the merchant, to read the Bible in the English language. That was his sole drive in his life. Because, see, that wasn't possible. We so much take it for granted that we have Bibles galore. At home, (laughs) just in our homes we have Bibles, we have them on our phones and our tablets, notebooks, they're everywhere. And so we say, what's the big deal? They didn't have anything. And Wycliffe says, I'm going to translate it out of the Latin, Vulgate, that was written by Jerome a thousand years before. And I'll put it into English. Quite a feat because... The Roman Catholic Church does not put up with that. Nobody is to translate it out of Latin. Keep it Latin where the common man doesn't read Latin. Well, you see, he believed in the Bible and he believed in preaching. Wycliffe was also a preacher as well as a translator. There were many people in England who were amazed by his teaching and preaching. They were called the Lollards in the 1400s. You can say, What's the Lollards? That sounds kind of crazy. It's a lot of people say they don't know, but it probably was a derogatory term <laughs> coming from the Roman Catholic Church, in that they were they were Lollards. They were, you know, lazy, lo- just lolling around, you know, lollygagging. Right? They were worthless people, as far as they were concerned. Anyway, Wycliffe and the Lollards preached the gospel throughout all of England in the 1400s. It was not popular coming from the Roman Catholic Church that was in Rome, but there were people in England that rather liked it. Matter of fact, if you'd see two people walking around on the countryside or in the city of wherever, you would actually probably, at least one of those two, would be a lollard. They were getting very popular. The church really got angry at Wycliffe. They didn't make it easy for him to keep getting those Bibles out to the people. But these people that were disciples of Wycliffe, they kept it on. What did Wycliffe actually believe? Besides the Bible and its authority, that says a lot right there, doesn't it? How many churches today believe in the authority of the Bible? In our country today, how many really would say they believe every word of it? Well, the conservatives, the fundamentalists, or however you want to term them, would probably be the only ones. Many liberal churches and many in the middle, and they say, well, I don't believe everything that's in there. You know, It, it came from man. And yet they call themselves Christians and then I say they're not Christians. Either you believe in the Bible, it's the Word of God, or it's not. Other than than that, what is it? It's the Word of man? Then this is worthless. The church is dark today. What did he believe? I'll show you why they're dark. He believed in divine sovereignty. This is before the Reformation, folks. Listen to what he believed in. You know what divine sovereignty is? God is in control of everything. All the nations, every leader that comes up, they are there because God put them there. Positively, negatively. God did that. He has total control. He's not just sitting back saying, whatever happens, happens. No, He's controlling everything. He also believed that He not only was divine in his sovereignty, but he was his grace was divine, sovereign grace. Which means he did not believe that man chose God, but that God chose man. Where did he get that? From all of scripture. It's all over. How can you miss it? He believed that. He believed in radical depravity. That man had nothing good in him and he could never choose God because he is dead in his sins and transgressions. Are you hearing this? This is coming against the grain of what he was taught. And what everybody was taught, it was the free will of man. And you can choose God or not choose Him and it's all up to you. And God just laid it out there so it's up to you to believe. So he believed in divine election, he believed in uh, depravity of man, he believed in the irresistible call because whenever God called his people that he chose from before the foundation of the world, which is found all throughout scripture, it was an irresistible call because that's going to be the time when he calls and you answer. If you're his and it's time, you say, yes, I believe and he grants you faith, he grants you repentance. He also believed in preserving grace. you know what that is? Eternal salvation. Not based upon how you live. It's called, if you're saved, you will be saved through eternity. Oh, that was totally unpopular. Every one of those beliefs that we just gave you there is totally against the grain of what the church believed for a thousand years. But I will tell you, Goes back to an early church father who the Roman church claims as their own. His name is Augustine. Who believed in all of those same things. Wycliffe got a lot of his beliefs from Augustine. As he read scripture. And he saw that we are nothing folks. We're zero. We can't do anything good to please God. It was not a works based salvation that he had. But it was the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that's what Wycliffe believed. What do you think of that man? Well, most people in the religious mode at that time hated him. But the common people loved him because he gave them the Word of God so they could read it. It wasn't easy. Uh, I will tell you just a comment on John Huss. Probably Jan Huss is probably the way to pronounce it. But... uh, from Bohemia, and how it got to there, or Czechoslovakia, modern day, they are in that area anyway. That there were students who went to Oxford who learned these truths that Wycliffe had, and they took them back to this Bohemia. And they brought Wycliffe's ideas, his doctrines, and books right back to the land. And that affected Jan Hus. He read those books. He came to believe in the Bible alone. Not tradition. Grace alone. Not works. Faith alone. Jan Hus was a reformer. And he didn't even know it. But they're called pre-reformers. There was another guy from Italy by the name of Savonarola who also did those truths, and boy, he was not very popular there in Italy either. And by the way, Reformation kind of died pretty quick in Italy, and it stayed uh, very, uh, I guess you could say, healthy Roman all the way through. So what we've just done now is come up to the Reformation. So we've had pre-Reformation. Now we go to number two, Reformation in England. actually, I should say something just about the Reformation just before we go here. By the way, Huss was killed at the stake. He was burned. Reformation now. We go up to the 1500s. How did the Puritans get what they had? Well, we've seen Wycliffe and then in the 1500s, remember, Wycliffe is the bright and morning, he's the morning star, sorry, of the Reformation. Christ is the bright and morning star. of <laughs> uh, the Reformation, you can see how that went. Okay, and the Reformation, and I'm not going to spend hardly any time on it all, I've done it throughout the years, uh, but this is so vital to American history, to world history, one of the biggest movements, maybe the movement of all time in history at least as far as the church is concerned, Martin Luther, everybody knows about the 95 Theses, put on the Wittenberg door, and he was really challenging the students there about some of the uh, problems uh, that the church had. Indulgences was the main issue, I guess you could say there. There were many. But anyway, that started something. Luther had no idea it would happen. It spread all over Europe. And it was really dealing with sola scriptura. No doubt he had read the works of Wycliffe that morning star. Sola scriptura, sola fide. He found out in Romans chapter 1, I think it's in verse 17. This is a cry of the Reformation. Where it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther went on to show that that faith is alone. There's no matter of works or attending church, baptism, all of those things that can be added to faith. He said, sola fide, faith alone. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone, not works. Sola Christa, which is by Christ alone. And then also, Soli Deo Gloria, the glory to God alone. Not to man, not to the church, not to traditions. All of these are by themselves, sola. And those were the cries of the Reformation, How did this ever get to England? That island off that mainland. It was in Germany. It was in Switzerland. Well, I'll tell you what. We have here the story of the Reformation. And it's amazing how God used something that was sinful, that was like accident, but it's not accident, of how it happened in England. Could have been other ways, but I will tell you this is the main way to where how it starts. In England, there was something called Anglican, and the reason is is because of Henry the Eighth. You guys might remember that song. I think it was in the 60s. Henry the Eighth, I am, I am. Henry the Eighth, I am. You guys remember that, right? You don't think too positively of Henry, do you? Well, I'll tell you what. God used him in a pretty amazing way. Uh, looks like an accident. Early history of Church of England really is Henry VIII. And you see, they didn't have the Church of England until Henry VIII says they do. They were under the Roman Church. Remember Wycliffe in the 1400s? Well, somehow King Henry... It's going to have a lot to do with the Church of England because he's going to start it. He had enough of the Pope. Why is that? Well, uh, I will tell you that he wanted another wife. He wanted to divorce his wife and he was married to a Spanish lady by the name of Catherine who came from their king and 17 years he lived with her and... He never got an heir of a male. To produce. He did have a daughter, but not the male. He wants a male king to come in after him after 17 years, and he wants a divorce. The Catholic Church says no. And he pleads with them for six years. Finally, he gets a, he's had enough. And he's, he's going to get another wife, no matter what. What he does is he takes matters into his own hands. He's from England. He's not from Italy. He's not from Rome. Most of the world is under one realm, the Roman Catholic Church. Henry says, okay, I'm going to become the supreme head on earth of the Church of England. So he declares it and he breaks the bonds and the ties with the Roman Catholic Church. That went over real well with the Romans, didn't it? But Henry VIII gave Henry VIII permission to divorce.
1: <laughs>
0: he got another wife, and then another wife, and another wife. Six wives Henry Eighth had. I think it was said that, uh, what was it? Um, there was a way to remember this. Um, here it is. Divorce. Beheaded, died, that's three wives, divorced, that's fourth wife, beheaded, five, and six, survived. (laughs) That's what he did with his wives, either divorced them or beheaded them. Uh, Quite the power that he had. Uh, He's not popular with the Romans, but he's popular with the English people for the most part. He played uh, quite the role, though, because it's a Church of England now, and it's not under the Pope, so it's not Pope-ruled. And there are some things changed in the Church. It's still a lot Catholic, it's resembling, but it's different, though. Uh, And this is where it starts becoming Protestant. Henry died and was succeeded by his son, Edward. Edward was Henry's son by his third wife, Jane Seymour, He was only 10 when he became king, 10 years old, and he died at 16. He ruled as a king for six years. This is amazing what God does. He becomes protected by Protestants. He's under the Protestant protectors. Edward was moved to embrace the Protestant movement so that the Church of England becomes more and more protestant while he is reigning as a kid. So really the reformation started with Henry VIII but it didn't make much progress. But it started to make progress with this Edward, a protestant direction in a reformed direction. And the reformed influence was felt strongly in England as that time period went and This Edward, this kid, took advice from Protestant leaders. He got letters from John Calvin. And he became embracing to Reformation theology, which is what we believe today. And so he had a Protestant faith. He dies, 16 years old. Moving on ahead, Protestants want to continue the Protestant succession in England. They want to make it stronger. What it is, is they want to follow the Word of God. Not by the way the church has set up its traditions and its rules. Anyway, there was a Protestant Lady Jane Grey. There have been books and movies and about all this story. Some of you have picked this in bits and pieces. You go, oh, that's where this fits in. There became a queen after her, because Lady Grey Jay was again like many of them was killed uh, executed the next queen who came from Henry VIII goes by the name of Mary and you can go is that bloody Mary? and you can go that's right she is now ruling the pendulum swings back and forth you see there had always been for so long hundreds and hundreds of years all throughout the dark ages the church and the state were together the pope really kind of called the shots even in that uh, holy roman empire it was was not divided They, they came together although there were other rulers, and in this case we see how uh, the church and the state together doesn't work very good. It's not a good thing. The church needs to be separated, and it calls its own shots rather than the government calling the shots. That's why we got what we have all the way up to to now. What, what do they call that? Separation of church and state. And so what, And that's really what's going to have to happen. They're going to have to separate because it can't work this way because you can have one king or queen who is favorable to the church, to the, to the Reformation church. The next king that comes along might be favorable to the Roman church. And it can go back and forth, and it did. It was a pendulum swinging back and forth. So it was King Henry Eighth, and at least something that started them. Then Edward, it's swinging good. And then you get Mary, and it goes back over here. And then she persecuted and killed Christians. At least 300 were killed, beheaded death happened, many did die because of the Protestant faith there. During that time, there was a famous book, one of the famous books ever written in England called Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many have heard of that one? Written at this time. Of course, it goes all the way back to the Apostles and right on through church history, but a lot of this happened during his time also. So, now, the next ruler... Another child of Henry VIII was Elizabeth. Everybody's heard of Queen Elizabeth. So she reigned for 45 years. And she was competent as a queen. She was very brilliant. She was Protestant. She came from the Protestant background. She had favored that highly. had convictions to the Protestant faith. She was not a Puritan. She wouldn't have believed in all those doctrines, but she did see that the Roman church was wrong, and she wanted the Word of God be brought to people. There was Thomas Cranmer, quickly. He was an archbishop of Canterbury. He had something to do with the Reformation. He wrote the book of Common Prayer as a worship of the English church. It had been inside the Anglican church. The Church of England, Anglican, or the Episcopalian church. That's all basically the same. But he was for reformation too. He was for preaching the gospel, that book of uh, uh, common prayer, uh, even though it's mentioned negatively by a lot of uh, people in the reform movement, a lot of people in the reform movement do see that it did have a good use, though, devotional use, and it had things written in there that would have been helpful. But he preached the gospel in a gentle way to Henry VIII. Cranmer gave, he was kind of pliable, he would kind of go in and out, and he didn't want to get persecuted, and when it got close to that, then he would recant. Finally, there came to a point where he could not recant anymore. He remained faithful, he was viewed as an arch-heretic, he was burned at the stake in 1556. In Oxford. There are many other people, but as time blows by here this morning, I want to concentrate on William Tyndale. He's the man that sticks out in my mind the most today. I had to read more and more about him. How many heard of William Tyndale? Everybody would raise their hands, right? When did he live? A lot of people, I don't know going where we have been, I think you would say, oh, well, he's right around the Reformation, isn't he? Yeah, he was. Matter of fact, I will tell you this. The Reformation in England, the Reformation was William Tyndale. He was what the Reformation was really all about. It had already been set up, and we see how it swings from the kings and queens and it goes back and forth, and it's the Church of England still yet. William Tyndale is operating within the Church of England at this time. We turn to Matthew 4.16. And just before Christ came, Galilee and all the land and Israel and such, it's a time of darkness when Christ came, wasn't it? and the light came into the world. We pick it up in Matthew 4.15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is all Israel. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land at shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is what is happening now in England. It's dark. It was dark during the times of Wycliffe. It's still dark. It's corrupt. But at least there were some things going on where there's a flicker. Because of Wycliffe. Because he's what? He's that morning light that starts it up. The Bible... Basically, still yet, and, and they tried to shut down all the English Bibles that were around. The Bible was available only in Latin for the most part and only to priests. Tyndale says, that's not going to work. We're going to change that. And so the Reformation fires that were in Germany and Switzerland couldn't be kept out, and they drifted all the way over to England. Luther's writings, they were read in Oxford and Cambridge. Students would get around and start discussing this. They would probably have debates. They would read this. They were excited about it, because we're talking about Scripture alone. We're talking about faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone glory of God alone. They're reading all of these passages, everything that Luther had written. They're reading it and they are discussing, they're studying it and Tyndale is one remarkable man because, see, he studied the Greek New Testament that had been written by Erasmus. Erasmus had edited that and made it possible for Luther to take from the Greek text. So you don't have just a, a, a transfer from Latin. You see, that's that's like having a go-between there. Why don't you go straight and go back to the original languages? And they did. And Tyndale not only spoke English, but he spoke French, and Italian, Greek, Hebrew. I think there were a couple other languages that he had. He was tremendous. He was quite the scholar. and he So he studied the Greek New Testament, and he wanted to take it into English directly from that text, Greek and Hebrew. Wycliffe transferred the English Bible from the, uh, not from the Vulgate. Wycliffe had, Wycliffe had done that. Tyndale said, I want to go a step further and now get it from the Greek because it's now possible. Arasus made that possible. He said this, I defy the Pope and all his laws against the Bible in the vernacular. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou dost. And he added, than the Pope does. Pope didn't know much Scripture, and he said the plow boy will know more than they do. His goal was that the people of England would be able to know and to love the Bible. The truth shall set you free. The people were in bondage bondage to a, to a church bondage to the darkness and for Tyndale to take on such a feat is mighty dangerous you see this time he was not going get to get away with it because there was a guy by the name of Thomas Moore and he was out to get Tyndale he was to oppose him he warned him and Moore said if you start translating the Bible then you're going to start writing notes in there just like Luther did. What that is is just, you know, you ever put notes on your Bible to make it more explicable? It's not wrong for a man to write commentaries. That's how we learn. It's good for having all those books. They help. Visit them. Live in the book, though, the Bible. But if he started translating the Bible... Then it's going to get into people's hands and they're going to read it again. <laughs> and then the Protestant movement would overcome England. Tyndale was not going to be able to get this done. Thomas More was after him and if need be, and only persecuting would kill him. Truth, folks. People who hate the truth will kill. It's been done over and over and over again for centuries and centuries. If we don't have history, if we don't have the past, when we see things happen, we'll go, This is the first time this has ever happened in our nation today. I can tell you what. Just by looking at what happened in England, this is not unusual. This is basically the norm. That's how blessed we've been to be able to worship freely. For for the most part, throughout all of history of man, he's not been able to worship God in the way that we do now. And I hear that there's going to be a mandate, possibly, for the state of Missouri again. Be praying that we can continue to meet legally, safely. We need God's will on that. Well, here we go. How's he going to get this done? Single handedly, what he did is difficult circumstances. He wound up going to Germany. Remember Luther? He was kind of exiled too, as he translated the Bible into German. He goes basically to where Luther had been in that area. He translated two thirds of the Bible into English. If he would have lived the rest of his life in a maybe with more years, he probably would have he would have completed it. But he got two thirds of it done, all of the New Testament. Tyndale was sought by the church, he was betrayed, he was imprisoned, and then finally he was, he was executed by strangling. But not until he had gotten a lot of the Word of God that he was translating into it was smuggled into England through haystacks, through multiple ways, that people were waiting for those to come and the Bible just exploded into England again and just multiplied in the English from the Greek. Very accurate. They killed him. His dying prayer was this. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That was his prayer. He didn't say, Lord, save me from this death. See, he knew where he was going. Oh, but you know who was king at that time? We go back to Henry the Eighth. was king at that time. It was not long after that, about seven years, after Tyndale died, that Henry VIII gave permission for what is called in English history, the Great Bible. The Great Bible was to be distributed throughout England. Henry VIII permitted that. Let it be all abroad. The Great Bible was largely based on Tyndale's work. By the way, the King James Bible that we're all so familiar with was published in 1611. 50 leading scholars worked on this famous great translation 90% of it though came from William Tyndale one man 10% of it came from these 50 other men it was trying times in england but tyndale was was just amazing with courageous Fortitude, as he brought the Bible into English. What did he believe? Well, he believed what Wycliffe believed. He believed what Luther believed. Calvin, Swingley, John Knox. They all believed basically all the same things. There are other little nuances that are secondary. We're talking major. What about salvation? What had been taught for a thousand years? Well, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, and you might be saved. Especially when you get out of purgatory and people give money and then if they give enough money, you will get eternal life. That's horrendous, folks. That's why there was a reformation, that kind of stuff. That's just junk. The truth does prevail. It does prevail. The truth marches on. We win. Keep preaching what this is truth. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. Preach the truth. God honors it. Romans 9. This is what he believed. What did he believe about the sovereignty of God? Well, Romans 9, verse 16. says, for the Scripture says... No, no, no. Back down. So then it does not depend on the man who wills that shoots down free will for salvation, doesn't it? It doesn't depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, who works, but on God who has mercy. And then he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. I'd read that much of my life before I came to the real truth of what it meant, and it made me angry, because I'm going, I believed. I did something. I said yes, and that, you know I believed in evangelism. And so therefore, yeah, God did most of it, but I did my one percent part. What does it say here? Just, I mean, do you believe the Bible? Romans 9 makes a lot of people angry. And you know what? If they submit to the truth, they say, oh my, God has more sovereign power than I can even imagine. And I am nothing before a holy God. What can I offer God? Nothing. Because He says He uses Pharaoh. He could have changed Pharaoh's heart, but He didn't. But Israel He delivered He had chosen that before the foundation of the world. It says in verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does He still find fault then? For who resists His will then? It's God's will, right? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you? How can you argue with God? You can't. The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? We're talking about sovereign salvation here. This is the context. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Does he have the right to do that? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy... He gives mercy to whom He desires to give mercy. He gives wrath to those who deserve wrath. Who deserves wrath? Everybody. The whole thing is, it's not a matter of saying, well, you know, uh, I, I, I I, I can't believe that. Well, the thing is, who deserves wrath? Everybody does? Is there anything that you can offer God? No. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It says in verse 4, but he made you alive together with him. He made you alive. What does that mean? It means you were dead. Did you say, oh, I think I'll wake up now and believe in God. You couldn't have, you wouldn't have. You didn't have the heart to do it. You were dead. How dead is dead? Dead is dead. You cannot respond. A dead man lays on the ground. What? What? You can say, come on, come on up, come on, you can do it. Come to life. You cannot do that. Only God can do that. Romans 9 is saying this. And he's talking about Israel. And he will give them life again as a nation. But until then, there are individuals that he will give salvation. And he's done that all along Through Old Testament, New Testament history. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And it all starts when? When you say yes, no. Ephesians 1 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, before you were in the womb, before you were created before the world was created. He already had a plan that, he, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. Or He predetermined us. Does He know everything? Yes. Some people say, well, He saw that I was going to choose Him and that's why He brought me in. Well, then He saw that you had some good in you and you were intelligent enough to respond to Him. No. It cannot be that way because you are dead. And it, it also takes oh. God does, does God know everything? Then He would have known before the foundation that you're going to be saved not because you responded but because He chose you to do that. Is there a difference? Huge. Huge. Do you really believe the truth? Oh, it makes you mad. Because you can say, but I did this. Yeah, you did. You said, yes, Lord. I trust in You. I repent. Why? Did you say that? That's the question. Because God woke you up to what life is and brought you to life. See, these are the things that the, when the church reformed, they all believed in. It wasn't long later, it started going back to the free will of man. Where did you ever get that? You will never see it in Scripture. We read it in Romans 9. What does it take to be convinced? John 1. You must see what God's will is. And it says in John 1, 12, But as many as received Him, say, I received Him. Yes, you did. To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now watch. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. You're not born again because you were born by flesh and blood. Like this. You're not born again because of that. But He says, nor of the will of the flesh. You're not born because of your flesh, your own self. Nor of the will of man. But you're born of God. Oh, that says everything. This is at the heart, folks, of Reformation theology. And if you go against that grain, you're going against the very grain of what your inheritance is. From the Old Testament saints who preach it, we go all through Scripture and go one after another, after another, after another. Through Jesus, through the apostles, through the early church, To Augustine. It got lost for a thousand years, became the will of man, and then they discovered that it is not the will of man, it is the will of God. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest thinkers, philosophers that America's ever known, and the greatest theologian, who was a Puritan born here in America, and he taught, he wrote a book called The Free Will of Man. And what he did, it agreed with Martin, Martin Luther's book called Bondage of the Will. The, the, the free will of man can pick things. I, I, that was my choice to do this, to do this, whatever I'm doing. But we're talking about the salvation. Man does not have a will. It's in bondage. Cannot do anything. So he wrote a book on that. Augustine had written a book. Luther wrote a book on it. Calvin wrote a book on it. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book on it. And all of them said the same thing. What we just read in Romans, and in John, and Ephesians, and on and on. We can go on. We're, We're talking about Reformation theology, and it's giving everything to God, even in salvation. You see, you were taught about the free will of man in school. Much of the stuff that is in school, if it has anything to do with how man got here, whether it starts with creation or how man can be born again or what the free will of man is, I can tell you this. If it's not coming from God's truth on that, it is wrong. And I was taught that. I was taught that in my church. I was taught that in my school, the free will of man. Like I said, we have freedom to keep on continuing in our sinful state. That's the freedom that we have. You want to do... God breaks that bondage. So what did... Tyndale believed. He believed in sovereign election. He believed in also that the elect are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. They are meant to know Christ. Salvation is impossible apart from divine election. He believed in the depravity of man, he believed in a divine election. He believed in irresistible grace, limited atonement. He believed in perseverance or preserving the, of the saints all the way to the end. That's what Tyndale believed. That's what all the reformers believed. And the Puritans and the pilgrims that came here, they all believed that and taught that. That's what they were about. They'd come out of a free will of man teaching all of their lives and your own works. So the English Puritans... There were pioneers, Tyndale, think of John Bradford, John Knox in Scotland. You can think of the Geneva Bible that was done in Switzerland, Geneva, uh, and that spread. And that's the Bible that the Puritans brought over, or the Pilgrims brought over here to America. The Geneva Bible, and it had notes in it from Calvin and Knox and some of the other reformers and all the ones that had gotten together in Geneva and compiled that. That's the Bible they brought. And then there was James I, who was the one that gave credence for them to go ahead and translate it and have a Bible called the King James Bible. (laughs) You've heard of that, right? Um, There was disillusionment, though, with James I. There was Charles I. Um, He really stood strongly on the Catholic faith. There was oppression to the farmers and uh, all the people throughout the land, the paupers. And, um, Charles I was one who just was over all the people. He just took advantage. That's when Oliver Cromwell came in, a Puritan, and he had to get rid of the king with an army that were really made up of Protestant Christians, strong believers. They overcame the overbearingness of Charles I. They had to kill him because he overtook the people. What do they do now? They don't have a king. For this time period, and it was short, England was without a king for a few years. Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector that they called him, of this commonwealth. It was not under being a king. It only lasted for a while. And then later, the persecution of the Puritans who had the Bible and the Puritan pastors, it came under the act of uniformity of the Church of England. The English ministers had to conform to the Anglican ideal and get rid of their independent beliefs. So those who did not or would not were ejected. It was called the Great Ejection of 1662 when some 2,000 ministers, like John Flavel, for instance, they left their churches, preached outdoors, out in the woods, wherever they could. This was the beginning of the nonconformity in England and its history. They had two decades of suffering like you'd never seen it before. Imprisonment, killing of it. John Bunyan was one who was imprisoned. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest books that was ever written. It was the Puritan mind and soul. They were biblical. They had worship at the top of their thinking. Grace and also law. That was... What they believed in that's what we believe in we well, see this had everything to do with what we know as the popular story of the Pilgrim Thanksgiving so I'm getting ready to close it. I told you last week I was going to be dealing with the Thanksgiving story. I wanted to give all this history to see how we got here because you already know that story of the Mayflower and Plymouth and the Indians and um, there they are you know. Fifty half of them died, you know, with the, with the boat and coming over, and then quickly that winter and how tough of a time it was. A city upon a hill. Matthew five fourteen says this, folks. This is what we are. This is out of the Sermon on the Mount. But check this out. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, the ones that came over here had a vision. The vision was... There were a lot of reasons why they came and we'll get into that just real quickly and we'll be closing here. But see, they wanted to bring the Gospel over to the new world and to make it spread. They wanted freedom for religion. They didn't want to be oppressed like they were in England. There was the Huguenots before the Puritans came. like in the area that they had wound up in Canada. The Huguenots are French reformers. They were persecuted heavily. They also were like in South America, maybe Columbia. But also, maybe in Florida, there were a few of them. And then the Anglicans had already come, some of them, and had been in Virginia. By the way, that's where the pilgrims were going to go, to North Virginia and settle there. The Anglicans, remember, they're Protestants. And amongst many of those settlers, some of them were Puritans already. They were all members of the Church of England. And here's the deal with Pilgrims and Puritans. They're really basically the same, only they had a difference in thought. The Pilgrims said, we've got to separate from the Church of England. Total separation, we've got to get out, because we're not going to reform them the puritans remained in it and wanted everything in there to be changed whether it be statues of mary or jesus or you know those kind of things or that the way transubstantiation... Of course, that was very Catholic. I think that had been kind of removed in the Church of England's thought. There were a lot of things in the church that had to be taken out and make it sure plentiful worship where there is the Bible, there's prayer, there's singing, there is the communion. Those things make it as simple as can. We, we're we not going on pictures and statues and the the uh, the smells. and So anyway... They wanted that to be purified and to preach the word of God. The Puritans means to purify. Pilgrims wanted to purify, but they said it's not happening. We've got to start our own. And so they kind of did. And that was the distinct parts. The Anglican party, the Puritan party. The Puritan party is the separatist uh, separatist and the Puritans. They, uh, the... Anglicans and the Puritans didn't get along very well most of the time. The Puritans were the most significant settlement of Calvinists in America. The great migration that came in the 1630s, even in the 1620s at first that started all that. They wanted to form a new England in America. Some of the English Puritans began to become discouraged, disillusioned. Uh, The Puritans that were there so they started coming over Uh, What happened, we we know that in England they couldn't separate. They would get persecuted. It was not uh, freedom of worship. They went to Holland. They went there for about 11 years. They uh, actually had freedom of worship there. They got what they wanted in that sense, but it was very hard to live there. There was not much money to make at all. They couldn't make a living really to speak of, and it was affecting their children because Holland was very loose morally, and they were starting to take on the things of that nation, like what we have here. It is hard to preach the gospel whenever people have so many things that allure them today. That's why churches are almost empty these days. They're not hungry for the word, they don't want that. Thousands of English Puritans migrated to America in order to establish in a new country a new England. A new England that would be a light to the world, but a witness to the old England. It would show what a real Christian commonwealth is, what it would look like. Remember, they had that only for a few years in England. That's what they wanted to bring over here. That it would be based and of course, you can think of the Mayflower Compact. And then 150 years later, they come up with the Declaration of Independence and all the rights and freedoms that we have. No other country has enjoyed what we have had with the freedoms. It's all about that, isn't it? Freedom. Freedom to worship is where it starts with. Well, to close us out, we do it with the Thanksgiving story. You have the separatist. Robert Brown played a key instrumental role. William Bradford, the Mayflower, Plymouth. The Pilgrims came by, uh, led by the English separatist. The most outstanding of the English separatists was this Robert Brown. The separatists were sometimes even called brownists. He may not have even heard of that. But the Puritans in England who felt that there was no use waiting for the church to reform then started coming over. There was no use to try to establish a national church. They tried and they tried. It was not going to become popular. So they began to meet, not only in England, when they went to Holland. There were one group moved from Scrooby and Nottinghamshire to Holland. You've heard about those people uh, a hundred of them or so. And then they, the so-called pilgrims, fathers and mothers, that made that long voyage to America. And they said, We shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. And with the keeper of the records of Plymouth Colony, it was based on the account of William Bradford. He's one of the early governors of Plymouth, and he said this, So they left that godly and goodly, pleasant city of light in in the Netherlands. It's where they had rested there for 11 years. But they knew they were pilgrims, strangers, they were journeyers, and looked not much on these things, but lifted up their eyes to heaven, their dearest country. For God had prepared for them a city, as in Hebrews 11.16. And they saw everything in the light of God. And that's how they were able to come over here and do what they did. 11.16 says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. They were looking for like a picture of what the heavenly city ultimately is. They were a city on a hill. But ultimately, that city is the eternal city of Jerusalem, isn't it? That's what the our forefathers in the Old Testament looked to. The city that the, the Lord had prepared. The Mayflower Compact was created on board that ship as these pilgrims made their way into the New World. And it started out with God. It was in the middle. It was in the end. It was everything about God as they made this pact. And we know that... They settled there in New England and second group came directly from England this time. They didn't come by the way of the Netherlands. They just came on. And Archbishop William Laud of England kept putting pressure on the Puritans in England where they couldn't live anymore. They couldn't worship God. And so they decided to create a model community and join those pilgrims, a Christian commonwealth. And so in the 1630s, more and more came. And then you have the American Puritans, Cotton Mather, and you think of um, Jonathan Edwards, who was the, the last of them. There are many American pilgrims, Puritans, really, who had great writings that we still have this day. And uh, we had John Winthrop, uh, the early governors of Massachusetts base. He wrote these words, We shall be as a city upon the hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Altogether, perhaps maybe 30,000 or more people came in that great migration in England. Most of them had been from East Anglia the Anglican church and these Puritans settled in two colonies and later in several others and all the colonies that went on up and down. We know that great Thanksgiving meal that they had and gave thanks to God as they worshipped there with those Indians, thanking God that it brought them there even through all the different tribulations that they had. And they, uh, they lived and they died for truth you see where our roots come from? Do you see where the roots of the Puritans came from? We went all the way back to Wycliffe. Spent most of our time on that history, didn't we? We went a long time today. Thank you for your ears. I know history can be really rough to try to listen to for over an hour. But I think it's really important in the time that we live. Did you see a lot of similarities, folks? That has happened, is happening, and can happen and may happen here. Look at our legacy, though. We have Bibles that we can read, we can understand, and we have that doctrine that they had that makes it so easy now to understand the truth. And we borrow from all of those people as we look at God's Word and interpret it in a way that honors God. We will close. We'll have a word of prayer um, I think Zach has a special one here for us in light of what where we have been and what we've just done. I want to wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. It is one of the best holidays that we can possibly have. It's so scriptural, isn't it? Zach, let's pray. We give the
1: hearty thanks, most merciful Father, for all thy goodness, and especially for the bounty you have bestowed upon us who through thy providence and tender mercy towards us have now reaped the fruits of the earth in their due time and gathered them. We beseech thee in your loving kindness towards us that year by year our land may yield her increase, filling our hearts with food and gladness to the comfort of your people and the glory of thy holy name. And also dispose upon us thy special grace preventing us that we Thy servants may never sow to our flesh alone, lest the flesh reap corruption, but may sow to the Spirit, so that through the Spirit we may reap life everlasting. Through Jesus Christ, Amen.
0: Amen. Amen.